Well, we're glad to be here tonight with you folks. We've had a wonderful day, and uh, nice to see you all. I see uh, more gray heads than young ones. Better get at them, huh? Okay. Anyway, I've got a lot I want to tell you. I've got a long story I want to tell you, and uh, time is going by, but that's all right. You can all listen, and what time you do have, right? I want to talk to you about having faith in God. We have to have faith in Jesus to be saved. You all agree to that, don't you? Then, after we get saved, we have to work for our Lord. And so, we have to have faith. Now, I'll read a few verses from Hebrews, and uh, then we'll talk about it. It says here in chapter 10, For we have need of endurance, so that when we have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Yet in a little, very, a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if we spring, uh, shrink back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. So it's one thing to get saved, and it's another thing to do something for God. And if we want to do something for God, we have to live by faith. Now, I know most of us, we think, well, one, two, three, four, and that's it. Well, that's good. You can count it that way. But doing the will of God in some of the most impossible places is, takes real faith in God, trust in him to do what he wants done in that place. Because in verse 6 of the same chapter 11, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then it goes on in that same chapter, talking about Noah, Abraham, uh, talking about Israel, about Sarah, and Enoch, about their faith. Now, after we're gone from this world, will anybody feel that we've had faith to help them? That we have to think about. What about my life? Have I done anything to please God, to trust him for something that maybe I personally could not do? But with God's help and trust in him, I could do it. So I want to tell you about a little experience. It won't take long. I don't want to keep you so you go to sleep. But uh, anyway, I want to tell you about experience that I had with this. <clears throat> it, um, God pleased us down in the little country of Ecuador. And you heard a little about Ecuador here tonight. HCJV, that stands for Heralding Christ Jesus Blessing in all the world. They've done a splendid job. And God, I want to tell you about tomorrow night, uh, God has put us in Canada with native peoples up there so we can spread the gospel with them by radio. And right in the corner of our studio is a transmitter, and on it it says HCJB. <laughs> Isn't that nice? And it's going every hour up there, 6 in the morning till 12 at night giving the gospel to the native peoples of Canada. So we have a little part in that, and we're thanking God for that. We want to do even more. So to do that, 
we did this in Ecuador. We had a radio transmitter there, and we translated and transmitted to the native peoples in their language. And I told you about how this lady knew what time to turn the radio on because uh, she saw the sun coming through a hole in a crack and it got to a stake on the kitchen and hit that and then she knew it was time to turn the radio on because they didn't have watches. Well, God has placed us out there. We had 10,000 square miles of jungle, no roads, 300 inches of rain a year, quite an impossible situation, no bridges, even if you had a car. Couldn't get there that way, you get there by walking. But you can only walk so far, right? And that much rain and that much mud, that's a big problem. But radio can get there without getting their feet wet, right? That's right. And it can get there and into every home because we had these little receivers that he was talking about. And CJB built those and we put them all over the jungle. And God did a wonderful thing there. Those people today who were headhunters before are heart hunters today. They're Christians, many of them, and they preach the gospel wherever they go. We have 50 churches among them now. So it's work, it's work. But we need to have faith. Now, as I, we, had, we started the programs in Ecuador at six in the morning, because the Indians, uh, they don't know when to go to bed. And uh, they have two sleeps. One is the first thing at night when it gets dark and then they get up and go hunt monkeys. And then they go to bed again and get up in the morning. So we decided to start at six o'clock in the morning with our radio program. So we did that and every, all over the wide jungle there, people heard the gospel through radio. That was great. How many of you accepted Christ the first time you heard the gospel? Anybody here? First time, yeah, I don't see any hands, okay? That's the way it is. So if we want them to understand the gospel, we have to get it to them often, right? And so we did that by radio, and it worked. It was great. So I got to do a lot of broadcasting, teaching God's word by radio in the native language there. And now I'm trying it with the natives up in Canada, and I hope I can do that. But they ask, why don't you put that radio on often, more often, more hours? We want to hear the gospel better. We want to hear the Bible taught better. How can you do it? Well, we're out there in the jungle, and we have a generator. There's no electricity there, except what we make. And it takes fuels, and how do you get fuels in there? By airplane, that's the only way to get it there. So we, we got it, and... Uh, fly in diesel fuel. But how are we going to add more hours to broadcasting? Means a whole lot more flights of airplanes, a lot more money to for, buy it and get it there. What should we do? Well, folks, you got to have faith in God to realize that he can tell you what to do. So one day I was fishing. I like to fish and there I was fishing there and uh, the Indians took me by canoe and we went around the corner, and lo and behold, there's a waterfall there. I didn't know it was in the river, but there it was. So we turned another corner, and there's another waterfall. Hmm, why should we be flying fuels in by airplane when we've got water power that we could turn into electricity? Oh, don't you be like that dear woman that I was telling about this. And she said, Frank, aren't you ashamed of yourself?
You took that electricity out of that water and you ruined it all. <laughs> well, you know, she didn't know what she was talking about. Anyway, uh, I suppose she's an environmentalist. Well, anyway, we, uh, we'd have to use that water power to make electricity. And that's not an easy job. It's a big job. And we started on the project of making a hydroelectric plant on the river because we have water in abundance. And why not use it, the power that it brings? So God gave us faith to believe that we could someday get that done. And even though I didn't know it was going to take as long as it did, but 13 and a half years later, <laughs> that's a long time, water went down the canal and turned the turbines and made electricity, and we no longer had to fly fuels in. Isn't that great? 13 and a half years. How many of you last 13 and a half years? Well, I just about didn't, but I did. God helped me. Believe him that it could be done. But you got to have the equipment, right? Where are you going to get that? Nothing out in the jungle. Hydroelectric equipment in Ecuador is hardly any of it. There's a little bit, not much. So what did God give me to do? Find some. So we went to a friend up in the States, and he said, I think you can find some in your little state of Iowa where you were born. And there's rivers up there, and they have generators that have never been used. Well, they haven't been used for 10 years because they're too small. They should be bigger because all you Americans, you burn so much electricity, right? So anyway, that's what they told me. So I went there to find one. He showed me. We looked on the Maquoketa River, found two or three plants, never been used in the last six, seven years. And uh, then we found one in Monticello, Iowa. And there's two plants there. They're big. How in the world can you take a seven, six or seven foot generator to Ecuador and get it back in the jungle? There's no roads. There are no bridges. How are you going to get it there? Well, folks, if you don't try something, you'll never get anything done, right? So we said, God will help us. So I wrote a letter to the Iowa Electric Light and Power Company. And by the way, an engineer that had been in Ecuador, he happened to be there when we asked for them. And he looked them over and said, Frank, this is just what you need out there. Well, fine. So I wrote a letter and told them I wanted to buy those generators from them. They wanted to know what it was for. Because I suppose they thought I was trying to run them competition, but not that. Anyway, I told them who I was, a missionary, and I needed the generators. I wanted to buy them from them. And they said, okay. So they had a board meeting, and they decided that they would sell us those two generators for $1 each. Yeah, I could afford that. <laughs> so fine, we'll do it. We'll buy it. So a gentleman there in Iowa had a big factory, and he said, just bring them up to my place. I'll sandblast them and paint them and get them on a rail car to New Orleans. They got to New Orleans, and CARE Incorporated, you ever hear of them? They said, we will ship them to Ecuador for you for nothing. Well, I could get along with that one fine. And so there they're going, down the tracks, to New Orleans, on the boat, 
and I was in the, on the wharf in Ecuador when they arrived there. I had three great big trucks there waiting, and they took it off on the wharf and put it on those trucks. And those trucks started up the coastline of Ecuador, and that's flat. And then they turned to the right to go over the Andes Mountains. And they crossed over at 14,000 feet. And the truck driver said he never found any other gear but low gear all the way up. Hours and hours. And there they were. We put them out in the desert where we have a mission station among the Quechua Indians. And it's dry up there, it's desert. Good place to put electrical equipment. We did that. See, God is helping along the way. We have to trust him. Now, the next thing is, how in the world are they going to get back in the jungle? There's no way. There's no roads. There's no bridges. How are they going to make it? Well, we had a, what I call a Chinese airplane. It's a DC-3. You know what a DC-3 is? It's one wing low. That's why I call it Chinese. One wing low. But... Uh, Anyway, uh, that has a six-foot door, but these generators are seven feet. So can you tip them at 45 and get it in the door? But they're beastly heavy. And so if they'd slip a little bit and just wreck the door of the plane, maybe the airplane, it won't work. So what do we got to do? We got to have a bigger one, bigger one. There's not a bigger one anywhere around that could be had. So I thought, well, someday there'll have to be a bigger airplane come and to bring these generators in. So I trusted God, because he told me to. So I trusted him. And you know, I was out there on that airstrip. I did have a Ford tractor, and I was trying to move a little dirt with it when we had dry weather, which was once a month. And it's quite a problem, but keep working. So I worked a little bit. And uh, one day when I was working, I heard an awful noise. And I looked up, and here's a big airplane flying over. They're hauling drilling, drilling pipe for the oil companies. It's a four-motor or four-engine airplane, huge thing. And I looked it over, and it went. And the next day it came again. And the next day it came again. And I looked up, and I said, God, give me that airplane. Well, you're asking God, and it has to be done. So if God wanted it done, surely he'd supply that airplane. So when I went to Quito to see my children were up there in school, the capital, I went over to see the oil company. And he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm a missionary down in the jungle, and we want to establish a hydroelectric plant in the river. And uh, we have the equipment. It's stored up here in the mountains in the Andes. And we'd like to have that flown back into the jungle. How long is your airstrip? I told him well, it wasn't very long. Well, he said, that's interesting. And I said, OK. And he said, how wide is it? And I told him it's wider than the wings. His wings of his airplane are wider than the, our airstrip is. But he seemed interested. And I said, uh, you know, I would uh, really be interested in you people doing that for me. And uh, I said, uh, he said, how much did it weigh? I said, nobody knows. Well, tell us something what it looks like, I told him. He said, you know, I think we could help you. I couldn't hardly believe my ears. But 
I'm trusting God. Anything can happen, right? Sure. In fact, only impossible things can happen when we trust God, right? So I said, I hope it'll, you can do it. So he wanted to know where the equipment was stored. I told him a general place, not exactly, but uh, I told him. He said, I said, but how much do you think you will want to fly those in there? He said, how much do you think it weighs? I said, I don't know. Well, he said, uh, I'll estimate it, okay? I need $4,600 for flying those in there. I'd like to do it for you, he said. Boy, I couldn't hardly believe it, but I'd ask God. So we don't want to doubt him, do we? So we did. Let him think. We'll think about it. We'll write there. We'll talk to you again someday. But I didn't have $4,000, to be honest with you. So um, we uh, trusted God. One day, MAF had an airstrip on the Peruvian border that they wanted to check in, be sure that it was okay to land, and they, they wanted to know if I would make the trip in there over land and check out the airstrip, so we did. We went by plane first, then we went by canoe, and then we went, walked the rest of the way. And we got there and found out that they had made a beautiful airstrip, but they hadn't chopped any trees down in the approach on either end. I suppose that maybe they thought it was a helicopter to come over and just boom, down like that. But of course, the wing airplane, you got to have some room, right? So they got their axes out and they were hacking away at the trees that were falling every direction. Everything was going good. And then in the morning, I got up and I got my little radio out and called to Marie back home. And she said, dear, you can't believe what happened yesterday. And I said, why, what, what's going on? She said, that big airplane came. What? I didn't talk to him about that. I didn't tell him where, where to even find the stuff, generally, but not specifically. She said, well, dear, it came in. And it came, and I thought it was just going to run its wheels on the test our strip out and go. But she said, no, they didn't. She said, they stopped with the plane. And they're bringing in a load of your hydroelectric equipment. What? I didn't have the foggiest idea they'd do anything like that. But we'd had rain a couple of days before that. And she said they pulled just a little bit off of the strip, and the plane went down in the mud, and the wing is going down so many inches every hour, and it won't be long until it'll be on the ground. Oh, dear, I'm sorry. I can't be there to help you in any way. I'm way out here on the Peruvian border. And I just can't do it, and the strip is not ready yet for the plane to land for me to come. I just can't do it. Well, another missionary was back in Macomb, and he was helping them. And they unloaded the equipment, and, uh, but they were stuck in the mud. Well, I didn't hear any more, and then we called the MAF and told them to come, and they came, and we finally got off of that runway and was flying home. And uh, you folks don't know how airports look in a jungle because the trees are so high and they come down on both sides so you got to line up on the runway so you can look down the runway because the trees are too tall on the sides. So I said, I'm going to look at that great big bird sit down there in the mud. And, you know, I looked as we straightened up and there's tracks on the runway and the plane was gone. How in the world did they ever get out? I didn't know. Anyway, we landed, and they said he left a half an hour ago. 
And I looked, and the tracks of his tires went to the very inch end of the airstrip. He got out of the mud and got the plane going, and he said, if I stop, I'll get it stuck again, so I'll just keep going. But he got to the end of the runway, and he didn't have flying speed yet. So I had a post there, a little wire fence, and they knocked the fence post over with the breast of the plane. And then I had another one about from here to the door, and I had that another post down there, and he knocked that over with the breast of his plane. Still, he didn't have flying speed. But then after that, we had a river, and it was way down, and he dove into that empty space, and he got flying speed and left. I couldn't believe it. There he's gone. Isn't that something, though? And after all the things he hit. Well, anyway, I checked all that out, and then I went back and talked to Marie, and she said, yeah, he left. Well, I wonder when he'll probably never come back, when he had that incident like that. Probably never. But I'm trusting you, Lord. Somehow, you're going to get this here if you want this to be. Trust in God. Impossible? Yes but not with God, right? So I went to Quito then and talked to them, and he said I wasn't here when they made that flight, but he said they could have let some air out of the tires so they could have been wider, and he said they took along a machine to unload the heavy stuff, and he said they could have left that at home, but he said, Frank, I want you to know I'm going to finish the job. I couldn't believe my ears when I finished the job. But you see, I'm trusting God, because he told me to do it. Now I know that he's got to perform, right? So I trusted God. Somehow, Lord, see to it that we get the rest of it. Well, I said, why don't you be reasonable? Send your pilot down when we have a week of dry weather, because that's unusual, but we do. After Christmas, we have a week of dry weather. So he said, uh, I'll send the pilot down then, and he can inspect the strip, and if he thinks it's good enough, then we'll uh, have him make the other flight, okay? So he did, and we called him, and the pilot came, and we walked the strip together. He said to me, Frank, it's dry enough. We'll have no problems coming in for the next load. Oh, that was so good to hear. So good. So the pilot went back. He said, I'll see you tomorrow at the airstrip where you have the stuff to load. So I went up there, and I took some trucks, and I unloaded that equipment on the trucks. And sure enough, here came that plane. And we put all that equipment in there. He said, well, you don't have enough. Go over town and buy some more. <laughs> Fill it up. <laughs> so anyway, I bought a few things, but not much. He said, get in. Get in. I had always traveled all those roads down there. There's a thousand curves in the road to get down to the jungle. And now he wants to fly me in. I had told Marie, when the plane comes, get the Indians to take a magazine, tear off sheets, put a cloud of dirt on it so it doesn't move, and put it down the middle of the runway so that the pilot will know where the middle is because the wings are over the fences on both sides. Oh, yeah. Sounds impossible, doesn't it? But remember, the scripture said that it was God, everything is possible. So you have to believe him. And God honors that if you believe him, right? 
So we did. And I had the best flight I've ever had going from way up around those mountains of snow-capped peaks of Ecuador and flew down to the jungle. And sure enough, Maria had got the Indians to put those pieces of paper right down the middle of our little runway. And he made a big swing out in the jungle and came back. And those huge airplanes, you can't believe it, that huge plane, he dropped it within 30 feet of the end of the runway. He's got to be an excellent pilot to do that. And there he's on the ground, and we're going down the runway and bouncing a little bit, and I felt just like a king. Oh, man, this is really great, you know. And we were going along, and we had discussed it with the pilot. When he gets out on the ground, he should go to the other end because it's a little higher, and maybe it wouldn't be so soft there and then we would unload there. But he said, I'll have guys jump out of the jump door just when I'm stopped, and they can put out some plywood, and we'll run up on that so it won't sink in again. It sounded good. Fine. Well, we got up there, and he stopped. He said, I think we're about there. And so he started to stop, but then he tried to give it a little extra gas, and he said, uh, we're stuck again. <laughs> oh, man. We're stuck again. Well. What should we do? Well, get your people here and we'll dig this thing out and this plane is powerful and it can just get it right out of here and I'll be gone. I said, it's your airplane. So we did it. We dug it out and uh, he said, now we got this plywood because just when he was almost stopped, he gave, and he saw it had a little bit, you know, maybe it's going down a little bit, he gave it extra gas and those poor guy with that plywood, they flew like butterflies in the wind. It was so strong. And, but God's still with us, see? And so the thing stuck. Well, he's dig this out for me. I'm in a hurry to get out of here, okay? So we unloaded and put the stuff underneath the right wing of the plane because he was stuck on the left side. So he said, uh, you get this all out and get me ready, and I'll go. I said, okay, sir. Thank you very much. I appreciate you doing this. And uh, I didn't have any money to pay him. But uh, anyway, he said, I'll go and we'll talk later, okay? So he revved up his engines and he started up a little bit, just a little bit. And he probably moved, uh, what, 10 feet maybe. And then he slid back into the hole and the outboard engine hit the ground, sheared off the propellers and it walked into the next engine and started it on fire. And there's my equipment sitting right under the wing. And here's this huge airplane, four-motor plane, burning up on my runway. Oh, God, what's, you know, please. Well, it happened. He burned it up. The whole airplane started to burn. He said, get these people out of here. He said, this thing's going to blow up and it'll kill some people. Get them out of here. So I told him, hey, this thing's going to blow up. Get away. And one poor kitty, he got lost. We couldn't find him for two days. But that's better than getting hurt, right? So that's what happened. And then we discussed, what are we going to do? He, I was a ham radio operator. He said, would you please call on the radio to our insurance company so they could send a man down? So they sent him. And I don't know how he got there so fast, but the next day, late, he got there. And they flew him in the little airplane using the half of the runway we had left. And uh, he came out, 
He said, Frank, walk with me around this plane. I said, okay. So we walked around twice. And he said, hmm, incredible, he said. Incredible. He said, this plane's destroyed. <laughs> well, it was such a big plane, nobody thought anything had happened, but it did. He said to the pilot, I'm going to pay you the three million dollars for your plane. <laughs> they wanted to get that plane out of Ecuador because they ran out of work and the government said, you brought it into the country and it's ours. Now, here, they got the money. They don't need the plane anymore. They were thrilled to death that they could get that. And so, they took the money and Guess what the pilot said when he left? When I had seen it fly over, I asked God to give me that airplane. I didn't know he was going to give it to me for good. <laughs> well, there it is. And the pilot said to me, Frank, there's your airplane. I tell him, thank you, I appreciate that. And they left. What do you do then? It sat there for about a month with rain and Hole was all full of water. It was just a bad thing. What are we going to do? A man came and he said, Frank, I've come to salvage this airplane. And I said, well, where's your crew? He said, I don't have any. I don't have any. No? No, I want to hire you. I want to hire the other missionary. I want to hire your tractor, your welders, and you help me take these planes apart. So, okay, fine, we'll work for you. So we did. We worked for him. It took a month, I guess, to take the thing apart. Now he said we're going to have eight flights of a DC-3 in here to take this stuff out, and you can bring anything you want on it free. So we bought a few things in that way, but anyway, got it all done, going. Now we got to restore the, piece, the strip. That's part of the insurance, so he paid us that too. He paid us for our work. He paid us for our tractors. He paid for everything, and guess how much he paid us? $4,500. Just the amount it cost to fly it in. Now, who did that? Who did that? Was it I? No. Our God knows what he's doing, folks. We need to trust him in everything. That's what it says here, to trust him in everything. Seek his face and believe him. Well, when you have something happen like that in your life, tell me, it increases your faith in God. That's what I want to challenge you people with tonight. With this story, is a story, it's interesting, it's in our book, we got it out there. But, if God will do that for you, it'll increase your faith to believe him that he can do anything. And he wants the impossible. That's his hand. He can do it. And he did it. So God helped us. And he helped us build the hydroelectric plant. It took us 13 and a half years before we got it done. Oh, but it was a great day. When we finally finished it, then we turned the water loose and it went down the canal to the generators and went in there and started turning those wheels and then the lights came on. Imagine <laughs> 13 and a half years and there it is. 
lights from water. We no longer need to ship our stuff in, gasoline in, but we got it right there from water. Now, it took a long time. It took a lot of faith, lots of work. But folks, my challenge to you is, believe God. Whatever he asks you to do, doesn't matter how big or small it is. Believe God, and he'll do wonderful things for you to see and do. We need to trust him. That's called faith, right? That's what this chapter is talking about. Well, the story went on. We did make electricity. We did do more broadcasting. And today we have 50 churches among those Indians. And they preach the gospel to their own people. God is faithful. And he will help us. But we need to trust him. We haven't trusted him enough yet. And you haven't, nor I haven't. There's still more yet to do in this world for the spread of the gospel. And you heard what HCJB is doing. Over in, I can't believe it, our son lives in Indonesia. And he tells us he can't even get a job there unless you're a Muslim. And now they signed on to all these radios, gospel radio stations. It's unbelievable. But it happened. It's happening. So folks, trust God for what he wants done in this world through you. And God will bless you for trusting him. And that's what it says, that if we seek him, he would be pleased with us. Exercise our faith. Believe God, whether it's airplanes, whether it's radio, whether it's preaching the gospel on the corner or wherever it is, let's do it so that people will hear the good news that they announced when he was born, the good news. Folks, people need the good news. But we can get it there by radio, by personal witness, by churches, by teaching. We can do it. Folks, these are bad days. Jesus will be coming soon. Are we ready? Have we done enough yet? I want to challenge you. Do a lot for God. It doesn't matter who's in the government. They're bad. But we can still do it for God. He'll help us. Live for God. Trust him. Believe him. And do great things for God. And he'll bless your soul as you reach out to the lost of this world. They need to hear about Jesus. Can you help them? Give your heart, give your life, give your body. God bless you. Thank you.